Good evening, church. You can turn your Bibles to Philippians 2, 1 through 11. If you have a pew Bible, that's page 1827. We're continuing our series, Stubborn Thorns, Sufficient Grace. Some of the thorns that we've been through so far include lust, anger, loss, approval, fear of man, and tonight is grace for the self-centered. I chose this stubborn thorn. It's a difficult thorn. And as Pastor Franks opened our service, everyone here will struggle with being self-centered. Everyone here will struggle with either being self-centered or God-centered. But Jesus loves to take self-centered people and make them servants. The book of Philippians is written by Paul while he's in prison in Rome. It's characterized as the book of joy. The word joy or rejoice is used 14 different times. It's also a letter where Paul is writing about selflessness to fight against disunity. There's, I counted over 10 different times in Philippians where Paul is either giving a narrative or theology about selflessness. Kind of a strange combination of joy and selflessness. And I think what Paul's communicating is that Christians should be joyful. Just as we sang, sing for joy now. Christians are joyful, not because we always get our way, but because we belong to Jesus and we can never get our way. This letter bookends with ideas of selflessness. So for example, in Philippians 1 verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Pretty fascinating for someone who's in prison. And then the book, the letter ends in chapter four with verses two through three. Euodia, he pleads. Syntyche, he pleads. These two women we know are believers. They are co-laborers in the work of the gospel. Their names belong in the book of life, but they can't get along. So why is this letter filled with rich theology and narrative on selfless conduct? It's because the the church of Philippi had a dangerous thorn of self-centeredness, not selflessness, self-centeredness. They had members, they had ministry. We know from Philippians 4, they had money, but they couldn't get along. Paul warns them about disunity and at the heart of disunity, for our families, for our jobs, for our neighborhoods, for our marriages, and for our church. The heart of disunity is self-centered living. It is this very thorn that plagues us all. So with that in mind, reading now, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, this is the very word of God. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality of God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Heavenly Father, we thank you for corporate worship. We come expecting you to transform us. We thank you for transformational worship. We thank you that you give the growth. Pray that you would use this sermon to bring much uh, glory to your name, that you would use this sermon to make us servants, that you would use this sermon to remind us of good news, of the joy we have. And would we all leave here just impressed by the grace that Jesus offers us. We love you and pray for all this in Christ's name, amen. Over the last 50 years in Western and Northern Europe, the Eurasian wolf has gone through different levels of critical endangerment. Sometimes there's multiple thousands, and sometimes there's only 80 or 100. Most recently in Norway where Basically, the weather is about the opposite of what we're experiencing right now in Augusta. It's very dangerous and harsh environment for these wolves to live. The Eurasian wolf is probably whatever comes to your mind when you think of a common gray wolf. And with modern technology, a greater understanding of where they are, how they travel, where they move in packs, greater research and evidence has been brought forth on how they live. One thing that dominates their narrative is that the old wolves look out for themselves. They're strict, they're ruthless, and especially at dinner time. You see, whether it's a small pack or a large pack, it's always the older wolves who eat first. And sometimes this means that younger wolves, they might go without a meal. Sometimes if a younger wolf gets out of line, an older wolf will come in and teach it a lesson. Many times the younger wolves, the ones in the most need, are banished from packs entirely from stepping out of line. The older wolves operate with one mindset, I must protect me. Doesn't that sound familiar? Don't a lot of us operate too often like the older wolves where we're concerned with me, myself, and I? If you're anything like me, even though you don't want to, even though you you wake up every day and you, you wanna follow Christ, you just can't help but find yourself almost every single day asking that question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Well, Christ would say that for those who struggle with self centeredness, he has come to set us free. And because we are united to Christ, we must give up all self centeredness. We must give up all self centeredness In tonight's sermon, I have three points for us that because of our unity with Christ, we can do these three things and Christ will make much of himself as he transforms our lives from selfish people, self-centered people to servants. There's recognizing our self-centeredness, reordering our interests and revering our savior. Starting in verse one of recognizing our self-centeredness Paul gives four rhetorical remarks 
towards having experienced Christ, union with Christ, comfort from his love, fellowship with the spirit, tenderness and compassion. Paul is like a hammer hitting four times, Christ, 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 Christ. And each time, if you'll notice in the text, he uses the words, if any, he's begging them. He's pleading with them. He is, he is insistently saying, if you have any of this, if any of this, if any of this, if you have any sign that you've experienced Christ, well, you'll live selflessly. And what does that look like? Verse two tells us the fruit of verse one is a unity. It's a oneness. It's a togetherness. It's a selfless abandon. And the word by in verse two says uh, that it's instrumental for Paul's joy. What makes a church planner happy is when the members of the church live selflessly with one mind, with one purpose, with one love. We know this is true of Jesus too. And John 17, 21, and the high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed that future believers, the church, would be one as the Trinity is one. And that by being one, we would aid the world in believing. Verses one through two are so crucial to this text, not just because it's instructions on how to be one, but rather it's a map of clues to our fallen condition. Verses one through two, it operates like a mirror. You can't think about being one in mind unless you're forced to recognize all the ways you don't wanna be that. You can't be told to have the same love as a church unless you're confronted with all the ways you don't wanna have the same love. I like my loves. I like my minds. I like my purposes. But there's something that God does when we realize our sin. There's something God does when we can become aware of our self-centeredness. Unless I go any further in tonight's sermon, I wrote down for us five diagnostic questions on self-centeredness so we can feel the weight of our brokenness. We can understand how we love to go our own way. We love to not be like-minded. We love to not have the same love. We love to live in our own purposes. So five questions for us just to reflect on. Number one, how do I respond when I don't get my way? Not great. Number two, am I a generous servant with my possessions, money, time, and gifts? Number three, when serving others, is it for who I want, when I want, how I want, with recognition in mind? Or is it for whomever, whenever, with only God knowing? Number four, do those beside me, above me, and below me believe that I am for them or for me? This last one's my favorite and least favorite. In humility, can I ask others what they find unhelpful about my leadership? In humility, can I ask others what they find unhelpful about my leadership? That last one actually comes from uh, an overseas missionary that our church supports. He was in town uh, in America, in Augusta, and I was with him uh, and we were talking, catching up. I was getting his advice on a situation and 
he, he basically kind of interrupted me and said, you know what I think would really bless you? I want you to go, I think you should go to that person and you should say to them, I want you to bravely tell me what you find unhelpful about my leadership. <laughs> I said, I think you misheard me. I'm trying to make the situation improve. Um, I want this to be a, a progression. But he was right. He was right. So why didn't Paul in verse 1 just write, if you are a Christian? Why don't you just say, if you're a Christian, have the same purpose? If you're a Christian, have the same joy. If you're a Christian, make my joy complete, have the same love. I think it's because Paul wants the church of Philippi to feel the weight of how we can't bring anything to the table. And yet God empowers us by recalling what God did and who God is. When we recall who God is and what God has done, only then are we fit for action, which takes us to the action of point two, reordering our interests. Reordering our interests starts with a command from Paul. There's no fluff. He just says, do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Never are we to be selfish. Never are we to be selfish. Paul is saying, lay aside you. Lay aside you. And then the first of two contrasts in verse three and four, he says, but in humility, consider others better. So difficult. So difficult to do either of those, to not do something out of selfish ambition and to consider others, and not just to consider them, but to consider them better. Now in a church this size, surely there are people that are a part of this church or people here tonight who like me, with no good reason, you think way too highly of yourself. You just do. You think way too highly of yourself. And also, probably tonight, there's people who think way too lowly of yourself. Paul would say, either way, you aren't to think of yourself. Pride is obsessiveness with self. Humility, as we've probably all heard before, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Paul says, in humility, consider others better. Verse four, look not only to your own interests, but, contrast, also to the interests of others. This command and proposition, it is very countercultural. This is not what the world tells us to do to be successful. This is not what the world tells us what to do to be important. This is not what the world tells us and sells us every single day when we leave here on what it means to be right or to be powerful or to be influential or important or even great. But Paul says, this is the way to unity. This is the way to grace. It's not to make much of yourself, but to lay aside yourself. And so it's no surprise when we look at something so countercultural that Paul would follow it up in verse five saying, have the same attitude as Jesus. Only Jesus could perfectly do this. Some translations might say, have the same mindset. So we are to reorder our interests to have interests like Jesus. Now that we are united to Christ and we are brought into the family of God, we're to have attitudes and interests and mindsets like our Father in heaven about others. I love the way 
that this is said by John Calvin. This is from book three, chapter seven of the Institutes of the Christian Religion on this topic. We are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will therefore sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. In so far as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. He says, we are not our own. In so far as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. What's the title of chapter seven? The sum of the Christian life, the denial of ourselves. Reordering our interests is a lot easier when we forget ourselves. It's a lot easier when we forget all that's ours. It's a lot easier when we truly believe to our core that we are not our own. If you belong to Jesus, you are not your own. You've been bought with a precious price. I love the song we sang, Lead Me to the Cross. That line, read me of myself, I belong to you. I, I, I long to be selfless. I long to not care so much about me. I long to walk into situations and, and to desire to be a blessing to people rather than saying, what's in it for me? How can I get something out of this? I long to not worry about recognition and, and I long to quit being ruled by being noticed by others. This can happen when I'm rid of myself and I recognize that I belong to Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes into the picture, we can live to serve others. Paul will go on, like I said, there's, I counted t over 10 times in Philippians alone where there's either a narrative or theology about selfless living. Uh, chapter two, this, this unit we're looking at, it begins with him having finished his personal updates, how he's doing, where he's at, what's going on. And he follows this up with some pretty jaw-dropping claims about his selfless living, about the selfless living of Epaphroditus, about the selfless living of Timothy, and I'm struck by Philippians 2, 21. Everyone looks to their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. What Paul's saying is if you're not a Christian, you have every reason to be self-centered because you don't know what you don't know. But if you know Jesus Christ, you'll wanna live for him and in doing so live for others. It brings about that selfless living, such a precious aroma I think, that's why, I think that's why so many people are so crazy about Chick-fil-A, right? We love Chick-fil-A. It's not because their logo's red. It's not because there's like six in Augusta. They have good food, but there's, there's also other food out there. Why do we love Chick-fil-A so much? It's because they have those two words they always say. Those two words that closes out every conversation and every transaction. Sometimes I don't like to tell them thank you because I don't want to hear it. This past Friday, I uh, went to my dad's group. We start at 6 a.m. So I was the guy in the drive-thru getting biscuits for the group. I was the guy in the drive-thru at 5.55. I'm just there waiting. It's dark outside. I'm cranky. It's been a long week. Probably more agitated than I should be. 
and I get, I get the biscuits, and I, I really don't like telling thank you because I just, I don't want to hear it. But it was 6 a.m., so I accidentally said thank you. <laughs> and the, the, the man said, my pleasure. And he, I mean, he meant it. He really meant it. And to my core, I was just blown away. Yeah, I'm paying for something, but he values me. He really values me. He sees me and he's handing me this. And he says, my pleasure. Can you imagine if the church was like that? If any and all opportunities to lay down our life, we said, let me do that. It would be my pleasure. Let me serve here. It would be my pleasure. Do you need more help? It would be my pleasure. Our actions always flow from our values. Every action we do flows from our values and our beliefs. And so if we're not serving our siblings, if we're not serving our work, coworkers, if we're not serving our spouses, if we're not serving our fellow members at First Presbyterian Church, then we need to question, are we really valuing them? Do we see them with joy? Do we want to take on their burden saying, it would be my pleasure to do this for you? Our actions flow from our values. We must reorder our interests that we'd be able to serve others. Finally, verses six through 11, Paul desiring to show the attitude of Christ. He writes out what was likely a hymn of the early church. It's not quite clear if it's verses six through eight or verses six through 11, but if you've been following the sermon in your pew Bible, you'll even see the way it's printed it's more, it's even printed like that of a psalm. It's even printed like that of a song. This is believed to be an early church hymn or an early church creed that uplifts for us who Jesus is, his person and his work. So looking to the cross and revering our savior, it gives us grace against this thorn. It helps us in our idolatry. Idolatry is making God things out of good things. We are good, but we're not God. We need to look to our savior as a way to both lower ourselves and exalt and lift up God. This is because when Christ captivates you, you no longer wanna live for your kingdom. When Christ calls you, you no longer wanna live for your pleasures. You wanna live for him. You want his kingdom. We pray for his kingdom. This can only come when we are worshiping God. As Pastor Frank said, we've come to worship God that once again, he would open our hearts to him and not us. Dr. Don Carson, former founder, founder and former president of the Gospel Coalition, he's preached here before. He once interviewed the late Carl Henry, Dr. Carl Henry, over two decades ago. Carl Henry was a professor of theology at Fuller Theological Seminary, the first editor of Christianity Today. And Dr. Carson interviewed him. And one of the things he really wanted to ask him was about his humility. It had stood out to Dr. Carson just how humble Carl Henry was despite all these accolades and achievements and his role in evangelicalism in the 20th century. And so he asked him, he said, how are you able to do and be a part of so many things and yet carry yourself with such a posture of humility. Dr. Henry responded, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands next to the cross? 
How can anyone be arrogant when he stands next to the cross? So what do we see when we stand next to the cross? Starting verse 6, we see that Jesus was God of glory, but didn't once gloat. Jesus was God of glory, but didn't once gloat. Verse 7, we see that Jesus was a servant to those who should be his servants. It says that he took the very nature of a servant. His identity was that of a servant. And yet he served those who should be his servants. He said this himself in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 8, the ever-existing Jesus, God of God, the ever-existing Jesus became man to die. Jesus is the only person who lived whose purpose was fulfilled by his death. He's the only person who lived whose purpose was fulfilled by his death. That's why Paul, in writing this, he doubles down. He didn't just become obedient to death, even death on a cross with an exclamation point. Why is that fascinating? Because one, he died by criminal execution, and two, he died for sins that weren't his. The ever existing Jesus became man to die. And so verses nine through 10, we see that the resurrected Christ, the liberator, the champion, the savior of the world, he didn't even exalt himself. Verse nine says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and underneath the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see in his humility, in his glorified state, all knees everywhere will bow. How can we not revere him? All tongues everywhere will confess his Lordship how will we not revere him? There is no one like him and he is our only hope. Now, one thing I want to make clear tonight as I'm wrapping up, we hope in this text, not just for facts, we hope in this text for forgiveness. Our ultimate hope, whether you've been coming to this church for 40 years or maybe tonight's your first night at First Pres. Our ultimate hope with stubborn thorns and, thorns and sufficient grace is not that we would leave here saying, I'll never be selfish again. Our ultimate hope is not leaving here saying, I'll never, never struggle with selflessness again. Our ultimate hope is that no matter how much you love yourself, there's someone who loves you more. There's someone who loves you more than you. There's someone who loves me more than me. Our ultimate hope is not that God would make us selfless, but that there's someone who's died on the cross for all of our arrogance, for all of our egos gone wrong, for all of our poor choice of words and bad decision makings and me, 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 me. Christ paid for it on the cross. On the cross, my arrogance was paid for. That is a humbling message. On the cross, all of my self-centeredness he paid the full penalty for that sin. The good news of this sufficient grace is that Christ loves sinners 
He loves sinners more than they can love themselves. And Philippians 1 tells us good news that the work that Christ begins when we receive union with him, he'll bring it to completion. You might leave here at night saying, I'm still so selfish. I'm still so self-centered. If you belong to Jesus, your destiny is secure. He'll make you a servant. And we know this because in Revelation 22, Christ calls us servants. He will make us a selfless people. He will not stop with his grace. Those who are infatuated with Jesus won't be self-centered. I didn't coordinate this with Pastor Frank's. Uh, I was relying on the bulletin for a children's testimony, but I guess I'll have to provide one of my own. So there's clearly from our first Prez Connect email that goes out from the awesome announcements and testimonies that we've heard previous weeks, a need at our church, a need at our church for volunteers. We need volunteers for the youth. We need volunteers for the nursery. We need volunteers for summer programs. We need many, many volunteers. Last time I preached was the I was once blind, but now I see. And many of you heard me share how it was in college at Georgia College where the Lord changed my heart and gave me faith. It was in college where I grew to really love God's word and want to be in God's word and want to be with God's people. But that's not where gospel work began in my life. Even as a, a, a problem child, the church I grew up at, Sunday school, children's church, youth group. I haven't talked to some of these ladies in 10 years, but I'll never forget the names, Miss Holly, Miss Kathy, Miss Rosemary, and Miss Teresa. They might've looked at me and thought, he's never gonna change, but their labor was not in vain. For age six to age 18, until I went off to college, they prayed for me, they planted seeds, they watered it, and as Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 3, God gave the growth. I wanna encourage you. The church doesn't need more volunteers. Volunteers need the church. And we have so many opportunities to serve with selfless living and make much of the King who died for our sins. So I plead with you to consider how you could be a part of living without selfish ambition and laying down your life for this body. And if you feel like you are out of capacity and you, you're signed up in four places, I encourage you, to reach out to your brothers and sisters in Christ in our parishes and ask them how they might get, on, get in on being able to say, this is for my pleasure. We would hate to withhold pleasure from our brothers and sisters in Christ when there's over 80 current opportunities for people to serve. Self-centeredness is a hard thorn. It's a stubborn thorn. I love me but there's one who loves me more. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us and you lavish your love on us that we would be called children of God. That no matter how self-centered we are, we belong to you now and you will not let us go. And you will help us be as one spirit, one mind, one love, one purpose because your grace is powerfully working within us. Open our eyes that we might forget ourselves, as Calvin said, that we might become enamored with you and your love and that it would change everything, that the world would be confused by the way we live, that people would smell the sweet aroma of Christ and be drawn into this community, this body, these believers. 
pray for this church, praising your name for the many volunteers who have laid down their lives, who didn't get to see the labor, the fruit of it. But Lord, we know you are watching and you are working. Continue to make us a family who cares well for one another, who repents from our self-centeredness, who reorders our interests, and who revere your holiness. Pray for all this in Christ's name. Amen.